Welcome to Ticket to Fly, the USA Nordic podcast, bringing you news and features from the world of ski jumping and Nordic combined. I'm Tom Kelly, and we're happy to have you join us for this week's episode coming up next with host Peter Graves. This week, we celebrate National Girls and Women in Sports Day. It's an annual acknowledgement of the accomplishments of female athletes and to recognize the influence of sports participation for women and girls, organized by the Women's Sports Foundation. We have a great history in Nordic sports of American women leading the charge. The USA was a pioneer in helping bring women's ski jumping into the Olympics. Stars like Lindsey Vann and Sarah Hendrickson won world championships. And now a new star is blazing trails for women in Nordic combined. Tara Garrity Motes has not only been a dominant athlete as women's Nordic combined rises to the forefront, but she's also been an inspiration to girls and women as a successful athlete and a role model. This week on Ticket to Fly, Peter Graves catches up with Tara from her training base in Norway. In December, she made history winning the first ever Women's World Cup. And on February 27th, she'll seek to become the first women's gold medalist in the debut Nordic Combined World Championship in Oberstdorf, Germany. How did she get started in sport? What was her inspiration? And what are her goals on behalf of girls and women in sport? Tara has a great story that I'm sure you'll enjoy. Now let's join Ticket to Fly host Peter Graves as he chats with Tara Garrity Motes from Lillehammer, Norway. Well, hello again, everybody. It's Peter Graves, and welcome to another edition of Ticket to Fly, Ski Jumping's weekly news magazine of the year. Tara Garrity Motes for the United States, a star of the Nordic Combined Women's Program for the U.S., joins us for this episode. Uh, she is in Lillehammer in Norway, where she has been training. We'll get caught up on uh, her present and future. Tara, certainly welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me, Peter. Certainly. That right now, you're 27 years old. You've been doing this for quite a long time. As we said, a pioneer in certainly women's Nordic combined. But when I look back at your background, you had a, a pretty high-level athletic background in many sports disciplines. Tell us a little bit about how those all came together. Well, growing up in Vermont, I just loved to do all sorts of sports, especially winter sports. I was a ski jumper from a very young age. I did biathlon starting at 17. I started cross-country racing when I was eight, and I also did some freestyle competitions when I was quite young. So jumping, you got bit by the jumping bug pretty early, right? Yeah, actually, I... First saw some ski jumps at Oak Hill in Hanover, New Hampshire, right by mm -hmm. Dartmouth College when I was cross-country skiing with the local Fort Sayre Ski Club, and I thought it looked like a pretty neat sport to try. So you were raised, uh, born in, in uh, Lebanon, uh, raised in West Fairleigh, Vermont, lovely little town of about 600 people or so. It's interesting to me, and there was a book written about it a year or two ago about how many Olympians had come out of Norwich, Vermont? We know there are other pockets uh, around, but 
these little uh, Vermont towns, and uh, I should uh, make clear that there are other towns around the country, of course, that have these pockets of athletic success. But you're from a region, a small region, where there has been an inordinate amount of people on Olympic ski teams. Isn't that right? That's correct. Um, we definitely have a long legacy and a lot of community members who are Olympians or who have had fathers or mothers or sisters or brothers who are Olympians. So it's, it's of course, remarkable to be an Olympian, but in, in this small sort of area that I refer to as the Upper Valley, it's not um, as sort of locked away as it, as it might be in other places. It's a very believable outcome for a, a young kid to say, hey, I want to go to the Olympics and then, you know, 10, 15, 20 years down the road actually be on an Olympic team. So I think that's the really special part of the, about the Upper Valley and also, you know, further up and down the river in Craftsbury, Vermont or you know, in Stratton and Putney. You know, you excelled at divergent sport as well. You did some, I believe, some mountain bike racing as well. I mean, you're a really good athlete. When would you say you reached a point where you had the aha moment and say, I, I really have an idea, uh, I really have a dream that I have what it takes to be really, really good? When did that occur? I think I was about nine years old. So very young. Yeah, I was doing a relay race uh, in Putney, Vermont, and I took our team from like, I don't know, 11th or 12th place into the lead. And I knew that that's what I wanted to do with my life. And there's been a lot of ups and downs and a lot of long, long way around <laughs> detours, but I have always wanted to be a skier and an international skier. And now you arrive at this point where, I mean, you're, you're not a kid anymore. You're a veteran at 27 years old. Still plenty of career time in front of you, though. But you have all this experience. You have an extraordinary training base. But let's talk about this winter now. And, and of course, we know, we've talked about it in every program, that COVID has had its ugly head reared over all of mankind and all of sport as well. So before we went on the air, you had mentioned that this year you weren't able to get as many jumps in. Uh, so tell me about that a little bit. Yeah, so I've gotten about 10% of the jumps that I had planned on in, in the spring. Partially, that was my choice. I tr chose to stay in Craftsbury, Vermont this summer and focus on my cross-country ski training with the, the great team out of Craftsbury, Vermont. But partly that was because my coach, who is in the Czech Republic, couldn't even come to the USA. So I didn't really have a coach to train with. And I tried to see that as an opportunity, which I think I did pretty successfully. Later on in the fall, I was able to have a great camp in Europe with Tomasz Matora, the head coach for the women's Nordic combined team. But then again, early season, we didn't get nearly as much ski jumping as we had hoped to in our, our November camp. So that kind of meant that I went into the World Cup basically on sort of what I like to think of as my 10,000 hours, basically on 
my basis of ski jumping and all the ski jumps I've had over the years, not on the training being perfect or the, or me having a good solid base going into the World Cup. Yeah. And one would think, you know, jumping such a highly skilled sport and, and one that you have a kind of an intrinsic feel for, the more you tend to jump, the better you get. So this puts you behind the eight ball this year, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, I was really, really proud about, I was really proud with how I handled the World Cup. Um, I had very, very low expectations going in and I just tried to focus on small technique aspects and do the level best uh, I could with, with the training I had had. Well, and indeed, you did remarkably well. The only World Cup that has been held this year for Women's Nordic Combined in Ramsau, I believe, and you won that event. So right now you uh, wear the yellow jersey. What was it like to win there? It was amazing. I don't think I've ever really gotten nervous for a competition before I usually really really look forward to competitions and I think that partially it was the the pressure of the fact that this was the first ever World Cup for Women's Nordic Combined and I knew that whoever won that event would go down in history as the first ever winner of a Women's Nordic Combined World Cup and partially um, the reason I was nervous was that I have had no training and I you know my new ski jumps, ski jumping boots were supposed to arrive right before the competition or, you know, before the competition for the, the training and they didn't arrive. And mm. the fabric for my competition ski jumping suit didn't arrive. And my skis weren't like my jumping skis that were supposed to arrive earlier in the year didn't arrive because they were supposed to go to Norway and then the Norwegian World Cups didn't end up happening. So it was, it was really stressful, but not in the ways I was used to or prepared for competition being stressful. I, I really enjoy pressure and I really enjoy competing. So it was a totally new feeling for me to be nervous for a competition. And I just tried to focus on, you know, the next day or the next hour, or the next 10 minutes. And I really tried to focus on how well I could do that next section that I was focusing on. And I tried not to think about the details or the things that had gone wrong or might go wrong. I just focused on doing the level best I could for that. And you got a lot of, uh, I mean, this was really picked up, the uh, results by a lot of American newspapers, uh, New York Times, USA Today, uh, a variety of others. Did you get the sense that the village of Ramsau, which is a wonderful one, and, and my guess is there were very few spectators there, but did did you get the sense that everybody saw the bigness and the historical aspect of this first Women's World Cup? Oh, for sure. Yeah, no, this was, this was very much history in the making, and that's what made it so amazing and so unique and, and really sort of a different feeling than any other competition I have ever been at. I've been to world championships before. I've been to world cup finals. I've been to world cup uh, openings before, but this was something completely different. And I think the members of Ramsau and the members of the Nordic combined community in Europe and all over the world really saw that. And this year as well, you've had less competition because a couple of events have been canceled. That's been challenging. I'm sure. 
Yeah, it's definitely been challenging. It's hard to stay motivated for competitions when you don't have any. Yeah, I can see that. Are are you going to stay in Lillehammer and just base there? Yeah, I'm working with a private coach here in Lillehammer, and I'm really happy with the progress that I've been making with my ski jumping. And it's nice to be in, in one place. And the less travel that I can do in the COVID era, the better. So I think this is a great base for me to prepare for the upcoming World Cups and also the World Championships. And Lillehammer, uh, of course, Olympic Village of uh, 94 games. It's a pretty special place. People know athletes. They've had a lot of big events there. I, I'm guessing just to be there is is kind of motivating in itself. For sure. You can definitely feel the Olympic legacy that the 94 games left. And I'm training at all of those venues. The gym that I go to is actually the opening ceremony venue for the, the 94 Olympic Games. The ski jumps I ski jump at are, you know, were used in the 94 Games. And also the legendary Birkebeiner Stadium was actually where I was just this morning during intervals. And how difficult has it been for you? I, I, I think you're pretty disciplined in, in your physical preparation and also the way you look at things mentally. But uh, I'll ask you. How difficult has, has COVID been for you to keep your eye on the prize? There's definitely been some challenging moments. I think I have to give a huge shout out to the amazing group of women I trained with in Craftsbury, Vermont this summer, mm-hmm. the green team members. I definitely couldn't have gotten through the summer as healthy and strong and fast as I did without their support. And being able to train with women my own age who are also trying to pursue excellence at an international level was just such a gift. And I could not have gotten through the summer without that. Okay. So that begs the question. And I'm very familiar with Craftsbury. I raced there years ago, but then uh, in this more modern manifestation of the Craftsbury Outdoor Center, uh, I've been up there announcing a lot of races. They have so many pieces of the puzzle up there. So, uh, can I? Can you tell me a little bit more? And they, with their very good training and their coaches up there, my guess is your cross country ski preparation, at least fall preparation, was very, very good. Yeah, I've never had such a good summer of cross country ski training in in all my career of being a biathlete or cross country skier. So that was a real gift. They just put in a roller ski loop. Um, as we all know, Craftsbury, Vermont is very committed to being green and ecologically conscious. So there was a lot of back and forth about whether they needed a roller ski loop, but they figured out how to do it in uh, a way that would be good for the community and good for the environment. So I was lucky enough to ski thousands of kilometers on that roller ski loop with being coached by Pepa Miloshiva in, in Craftsbury and skiing with the green team as a training partner. And how was it working with Peppa? Uh, she was my junior coach. Uh, she coached me to my first junior national title when I was 14. So it was such a gift to be back working with her. And, and she knows me so well, and she knows my weaknesses so well. It was also really cool to work with her again now that I am an international athlete and, and I am more polished. And I think she really appreciated you know seeing the progress I had made and, and appreciated working with me as a more developed athlete after she had helped put in the hard work when I was a very young girl. 
Uh, fantastic. Well, it's interesting. So are you, how are you balancing your days now? Uh, you say you, you feel, you know, that you're a, a bit behind uh, in the jumping training. Uh, does that mean that you are doing more jump training in Lillehammer and less cross country? Or can you break it down for us? Well, the way I like to think of it, Peter, is if you're a little late to the ball and studying for a test, it doesn't necessarily help to cram. So I'm just trying to have high quality jumping training and focus on points that will make the biggest impact in my overall results, but still be really calm and focused on the hill and not do too much um, because that can actually lead to backwards progress. So I think probably being being calm and not stressing, I mean, those things are always good for an athlete, especially during the preparatory period. On the heels of that will be the world championships. You're going to be joined by three other American women who uh, are going on the world junior team uh, first. You're the role model. You're, you're the veteran. What is it like working with these younger women? It's, it's amazing having other team members who are women for start. And while they definitely come to me sometimes with questions or looking for some opinions, I think we just see each other as teammates. You know, being an athlete is one of those amazing jobs where your age doesn't really matter. It's really your work ethic and your ability. So I like to think of myself more as just teammates to them and they're teammates to me. And they work just as hard as me. And I know that if they're given enough support in the coming years, they'll be medal contenders soon. You help them be better. Is there a way that they make you better too? For sure. I mean, having teammates around is, is so important and knowing that we're making history together and, and having, you know, shared experiences and working hard together. And, you know, there's a lot of challenges with women's Nordic combined that there aren't with other sports right now. You know, we're doing something that has never been done before. So there's not really a template. You know, we don't know if we're training perfectly. We don't know if, we should be specializing our training in a different way because we're women. And we don't, we don't even really know when our next World Cup is a lot of the time in the winter. So having buddies in uncertainty and teammates is really important for that. And I'm, I'm really honored to have them as my teammates. Not only in the world of skiing has your presence been felt, but also we want to acknowledge that uh, coming up on February 3rd, National Women and Girls in Sport Day from the Women's Sports Foundation. You, you have tra transcended the ski sport into a spokesperson for women's sports. Tell me a little bit about that journey, because so much of what you've done at various times has been kind of solo. Yeah, I think that as an athlete, I spend a lot of time being focused on myself and my abilities and my results. And I think that's true for a lot of athletes. You know, we have to put ourselves first all the time to have to reach our potential as athletes. But for me, I often find motivation by the fact I can actually change the world and, and help make history and make the skiing sports more equitable and more fair. So being able to use my career to genuinely change the world is, is really amazing. It can be exhausting some days, but I think that 
I'll be really proud of my legacy when I look back on it when I'm retired. I would guess now that even after the World Cup in Ramsau and with the uh, expecting uh, World Championships coming up in Oberstdorf, that people want a little bit more of your time. Have have you sensed that with media people? I'm always happy to to share my stories with you, Peter, or anyone who wants to listen. And um, for me, that's something I really enjoy, and I'm really thankful for the interest. I think the exhausting part that I was referring to wasn't that. It's just the fact of, you know, not knowing whether how the sport is going to progress or how quickly it's going to progress or having to convince people that women should even be in the sport in the first place. And that can be tough. Do you think, because, you know, we're, we're still not in for the Beijing games uh, for women's Nordic combined and bear in mind folks that Nordic combined was one of the first sports in the very first Olympic games. So for men, it has a very, very long legacy. Here we just in last December have the first World Cup. Uh, we'll have an appearance for an event at Oberstdorf for the World Championships, but still not in Beijing. So we have some work to do. As we know, those kind of things with both the FIFs and the IOC take time. But what is your understanding of what's happening to try to get women's Nordic combined in the full Olympic program. My understanding was speaking of members was speaking to members of the IOC at actually the Youth Olympic Games in Lausanne, Switzerland last year, which was the first ever Youth Olympic Games that women Nordic combiners were allowed to compete in. My understanding was that they were looking very positive positively at the addition of women's Nordic combined to the 2026 Games. With that being said, we need to have a successful world championships in Oberstdorf and grow the field um, for the World Cup the, the following year and have another successful world championships before the IOC will allow us into the games. So where, where, where does the power rest in where you're uh, – does it rest with uh, – USSA type FIS lobbyists or or from FIS people or or do you know? Well, I think it's important to remember that the I, that the Olympic Games are a private event. The IOC ultimately in the organizing committee has a say in what happens. Um, that being said, FIS helps decide that process and there are lobbyists that have to lobby for new sports to be added. And the reason that Women's Nordic Combined wasn't in the games at all was that nobody even lobbied for it. So I don't know if someone had or if lobbyists had lobbied for it, whether it would have gotten in because it may not have been developed enough at that time, but nobody even tried. So hopefully um, our representatives will try this next time when it's time in 20, for 2026. We have to say it's it, it's really unknown, but suffice to say, the building of a quality sports discipline is what you're all doing now. And for example, uh, tell me uh, how many people, how many women were in the start field at, at Ramsau in that first World Cup? At the first World Cup, I believe there was 32 uh, on the initial start list. Mm-hmm. And... 
this past weekend in Eisenach, there was 37 women at the Continental Cup. So the field is definitely growing at a really good rate. If we keep this up, we'll be catching up to the guys pretty quickly. So it's, it's very encouraging. With Nordic combined, if you really break it down, there's a lot of good reasons while, why the sport was so slow to start and, and good reasons why we're having a challenging time at finding World Cup venues, for instance. But I think what will cause the sport to grow quickest is that if everyone sort of steps up to the plate and makes big investments into the sport. And I think we saw with women's biathlon, when people really invest in women's sports, it does rise to the occasion. You look at female biathletes right now, and they're best, just as big of a draw as the male biathletes, which is, I think, a really good role model that we should take inspiration from. Absolutely. And, and so the number of nations is growing. And what do some of your fellow competitors that you're friendly with out there, what do they say, for example, is happening in their own countries about the growth of women's Nordic combined? Are, are they saying, oh, we're getting more uh, young girls into this? I mean, for sure. If you look at Germany, I think their development team, A team, B team, it's grown like a, a huge amount in the past three years. I don't have the exact numbers, but from the outside, it looks like it's tripled at least. Mm -hmm. um, they're really investing in staff. They're really investing, you know, they travel with their wax techs now. They have all these resources that make it fun to be a Nordic combined. And I think that the number one thing that will grow women's Nordic combined is if national governing bodies invest in women's Nordic combined. And so based on, on Romsau, and I, I certainly do believe uh, if this event happens in Lillehammer, uh, you're very likely to be on top of that as well. That puts you into serious contention for the a medal at the World Championships in Oberstdorf, Germany. Tell me, and I, when I, I talk about value, I'm not talking about money here. What is the value of a World Championship medal? How are you considering that? How are you viewing the possibility? That's really... A very challenging question to answer, Peter. Um, I think I love challenging questions. <laughs> <laughs> for me, of course, you know, as as a young athlete, one of the things you dream of is getting a world championship medal. So for me, it would be a dream come true for sure. And and I try to just think that I would like to compete to my ability on that day, compete to my best, and hopefully have a good shot at the medal, like you say. In terms of a more or less emotional. Uh, look at what a medal would mean. It, it wouldn't mean a lot of things that would it would mean if the sport were in the Olympics. So the USOC um, provides financial bonuses and things like that for sports that are in the Olympics. But because my sport isn't in the Olympics, I can't honestly say what a medal would mean in terms of you know money for the team or financial um, advantages of winning. So for me, it's just, it's just my passion. It's just what I do because I love it. And in a way, I think that makes it a little bit more pure. Yeah. I mean, I, I love the ethic and, and it is not all about um, having to have an Olympic gold medal to complete yourself. You know what I mean? I mean, because what, while it's a journey for all of us for whatever completeness light 
like means. I, I, I don't think I never sensed you had to have this to consider your career a success. Nice, yes, but not had to. Exactly. I think being an athlete at a very high level, um, a lot of a lot of people expect uh, me to go to the Olympics and to want a gold medal. And that is expected of someone who's ranked number one in the world. So it's, it's interesting to not even have that option and have to sort of prove myself to the world without that, you know, an Olympic gold medal is an international symbol of being the best in the world. And if you can't say you're an Olympian and if you can't say you've got an Olympic medal, you have a very different perception uh, of, of people from people and from media. So I think that's definitely made me look at my career and made me do the things that I love and, and value my career for um, the passion it gives me and the work ethic it gives me and how it genuinely makes me a better person. You know, I, I don't get to focus on the Olympics or the gold or, you know, all the money and confetti. I just do it because I love it. Mm -hmm. And one person, you know, very much that has been at your side uh, for so long is your mom. And you mentioned before we went on the air. And I can imagine it gets lonely over there, uh, kind of alone in a way. Um, you said your mom came over. Uh, what was it like to have your mom visit you? It was so great. I mean, having her around on the road supporting me at competitions has always been amazing. Like we traveled the back roads of New England when I was a little kid and she would you know, drive through snowstorms and help me with my skis and stuff. So um, to have her here helping me prepare for World Cup and a World Championships was really full circle. And I think also she hasn't had the opportunity to come over and watch me compete in Europe. So for her, she really was sort of able to realize, like, yeah, no, it's real. Like, I am vying for a uh, world championship medal, and I have, I have the yellow bib hanging in my room. So I think it was a really great experience for her. But what also surprised me about the trip was how normal it was. You know, like, we were just hanging out, and I was training, and she was skiing as much as she could. And, you know, I got to have some homemade home cooked meals from mom, which was so great. Um, what did she on. cook you? Um, actually just kind of like stir fry soup, nothing too fancy. A lot of roast vegetables and salmon oh. and, um, roasted beets. She always makes me eat roasted oh, I bet beets. She's a, they have, <laughs> she's a great cook. She's yeah. a great cook. And we sat around, um, and watched the crown and drank tea which is kind of our thing. So yeah, it was, it was great to have a little normalcy in, um, or normalcy in this really strange year. So if I was a young girl, uh, how would you lobby me? What words would you choose to encourage me to try Nordic combined? Because there are a lot of kids out there, not all of them at a young age have picked out a sport that they've decided they want to do. What would you tell me about why I should try women's Nordic combined? I would say that if you really love to ski, it's an amazing way to see the world and do two amazing sports in one sport. And also, I think it's a really good time for young women to try the sport of women's Nordic combined because 
that way they can be in the first generation of women Nordic combiners making history. And they're two very different sports, right? They One is are. quite cardiovascular and the other is, is less so. Yeah, but, it's a little cardiovascular. But still, <laughs> but still, yeah, carrying your skis and all that for sure. But also, uh, these are two very diametrically opposed uh, physical disciplines. But you know, Peter, I think that women are actually more suited to Nordic combining than men. Really? If you look at the female cross-country skiers, mm -hmm. a lot of them could put on a jumping suit. And they're the right body composition to be ski jumpers. Whereas Nordic, Nordic skiers who are men are often bigger and, mm -hmm. and heavier and have a lot more muscles. And couldn't exactly just as they are go put on a jumping suit. And, and expect to go very far at all. So I think female body composition is more suited to Nordic combined than male body composition. We are naturally lighter. We are yeah. naturally more able to um, grow strength without maybe growing a ton of muscle. That's fascinating. Very interesting. Well, Tara, I really uh, want to thank you for taking uh, this time. It's It's a delight to talk to you. And we wish you uh, good luck with the upcoming Oberstdorf for the World Championships. Uh, we'll all be cheering for you and, uh, and all the best in your training and preparations. Well, thank you so much to, for taking the time to chat with me. You're so welcome. That's Tara Garrity Motes, pioneer in women's Nordic combined, looking at Oberstdorf for the World Championships. I'm Peter Graves. Thanks for joining us. We'll talk ski jumping again. Tara is truly inspirational, and thanks to her for sharing her story as we celebrate National Girls and Women in Sports Day. If you enjoyed this episode of Ticket to Fly with Tara Garrity Motes, please help us by hitting the like button and also subscribing on your favorite podcast platform. That way you'll be sure to get every episode delivered directly to you. Stay tuned on Ticket to Fly for more episodes to come this season. For your host, Peter Graves, I'm Tom Kelly. Thanks for joining us on USA Nordic's Ticket to Fly podcast.